Welcome to episode 37 of The Grey NATO, a loose discussion of travel, adventure, diving, gear, and most certainly watches. Thanks for listening. And we're kicking off uh, tonight's show kind of just running right into it. So first up, we have uh, a quick mention of our ongoing giveaway. If you listen to this on the Tuesday, it comes out, you have two more weeks to enter for an Oris Diver 65. It's an awesome giveaway. And uh, that's obviously thanks to Oris who provided the watch. So if you go to the Grey NATO Instagram account, you'll see a picture of the Oris, only one picture of the watch. And in the description for that post is the instructions for how to enter the giveaway. Only put your comments on that one post nowhere else, and you're set. Jason, you got any other uh, new business? Uh, You're back from uh, the GoPro games kind of recently, right? Yeah. uh, Last episode, I mentioned that I was headed out to Vail, Colorado with uh, Tudor Watch to check out the GoPro Mountain Games, and I'm back. It seems like it was ages ago, but it was just last weekend. It was was a real blast. The GoPro Mountain Games, I, I didn't really know what to expect, but it's if you've ever been to Vail, it's kind of the... It's like a ski town that was built to be a ski town. Like in the late 60s, this town was constructed just to be a ski resort. And it kind of has this faux Swiss mountain town feel to it. Lots of kind of old old looking wooden buildings and balconies on hotels and things. And these quaint little streets and shops and things. And and it kind of sprawls below, I guess, Vail Mountain where, where all the ski ski runs are located. And the GoPro games just sort of spread out throughout the town and into the surrounding hills and on the creek that runs through town. And it, 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 was, a, it was a really cool experience because, you know, I, I was thinking it was kind of more of a, you know, along the lines of more like a, you know, music festival mixed with like a fun run and, you know, kind of like, you know, wandering guys on skateboards and kayaks and things. It, it, it definitely had much more of a, a sporting event feel to it mixed with mixed with like a, a festival you know there was music live music and there were vendors and tents and the the sports that were going on was this real interesting mishmash of freestyle kayaking that was done in this rapids right under a bridge it was a perfect place to watch it um slack lining uh there were dogs jumping off of this kind of fake dock into a big pool of water competing for kind of the longest jump um it was trail running and mountain biking. Uh, there was a World Cup uh, bouldering competition. It was really cool. I mean, it was neat to watch all of these really high-level athletes compete in these very niche sports, none of which I do. You know, these are these are pro athletes. These are pro freestyle kayakers. There was this guy, I'm not into to, to whitewater kayaking at all, but I've even read about this guy, Eric Jackson. He's kind of this old old-time, he's been in the sport for decades and he's got his own kayak brand and he was there and his kids compete now and sounds awesome yeah top top men's and women's um, rock climbers were doing the bouldering and i saw some instagram stories for the bouldering that looked great that's a that's yeah a, a really fun and, and it's cool because the bouldering of course doesn't require a huge field in which to do it so you can actually it does actually become a spectator sport at that level yeah which is uh which is pretty neat it looked like a lot of fun yeah uh, and and uh your your certainly your stories and, and photos and stuff from there people can uh, certainly check out the photos at least on your instagram but there was uh looked like a a real kind of mecca for yeah mountain sports and uh and that sort of kind of the original idea behind the gopro product yeah and and i was there with tutor which is it, uh, kind of at, at first blush it's they're sort of an unlikely sponsor of the gopro mountain games um just because 
luxury watch brand, part of the Rolex group. But, you know, Tudors, especially in the U.S., has made this effort to kind of brand themselves as, a, you know, like a, a watch for adventurers based on their history, um, but also kind of this new image that they're trying to project with, you know, a PVD dive watch and, and um, you know, the North Flag and, and watches like that. And um, so while I was there, you know, they had, a, they had a tent set up right next to, you know, L.L. Bean and, and uh, a lot of other sort of outdoor brands that were there exhibiting. Uh, but they also used the occasion to introduce their newest, they aren't really calling him an ambassador, but kind of a brand partner. And that's a guy that we've talked about on the show and Jimmy Chin, uh, who, whom I mentioned on the last show. And, and it's a great choice. He is a great choice. It's, it's slightly, it was slightly awkward timing for Tudor. I think, um, you know, they were really enthused about introducing him at the GoPro Mountain Games, but I think it was timed rather close to their their uh, unveiling of David Beckham as a brand ambassador. And I think they didn't quite know how to, to mesh the two together, but I had a great opportunity to, to interview Jimmy for about an hour in, in my hotel on the second day of, of the event. And it was, it was a real, I guess, writing career highlight for me to, to sit down with a guy like that, whom, you know, I've admired and, and looked at his stuff for, many years, um, in various magazines. And of course the, the Meru movie that, that we've raved about so many times here. Yep. And yeah, so my, you know, my interview rather than kind of summarize it here, you can, we'll put a link in the show notes. I, I interviewed him for outside magazine and that's up on their website currently. So you can go check that out. But, uh, we got to do it. You know, he, he sort of hosted or did a Q and a after a, a private screening of Meru that we did at a local uh, cinema there, which was, you know, I've seen that film like four or five times now, but uh, never, you know, it never disappoints. I, I could watch that thing every night, I think. Must be good on a big screen, too. Yeah, in fact, you're right. I, I guess I had never seen it on a big screen, and that was fun. And it was in one of these cinemas where you can, like, bring food in, and the chairs are like big lazy boys. So oh, it, was, killer. it was pretty pretty cool, yeah. So, um, yeah, that was that was uh, kind of the highlight of, of last week. And then just quickly, I'm I'm off on Friday to go to, uh, to Bermuda um, with Ulysse Nard and uh, for the finals of the America's Cup. Hey, nice. Um, which, uh, you know, different change of direction here. I was in Bermuda last year with Bremont, and, and I'm excited to go back. It's a cool place. And even though Ulysses' uh, team, Artemis, uh, isn't in the finals, um, I'll be curious to see how they, you know, kind of handle the viewing. But I, I'm, I'm told we'll get to see the, the finals from a spectator boat, and I've lined up a, a morning of diving on Sunday um, to kind of get out and you know, with some free time and, and maybe check out some of the shipwrecks there. So pretty excited about that. And, uh, yeah, I'll be there Friday through Monday. So that'll be my new business next time, I guess. <laughs> hey, very cool. You could do a lot worse. Uh, Bermuda, I'm sure, is lovely pretty much all year round. Yeah. And uh, to get there and check out a really kind of awesome boat race is as good a reason as any to get down uh, to that part of the world. Yeah, definitely. I'll, I'll be bringing a long lens and, and shooting and... Uh, Hopefully, come back with some decent photos. Hey, great! And uh, speaking of speaking of lenses, you you finally did pick up the lens you were you were after for quite a while. Yeah, I um I so on the last episode I spoke about this uh, Zeiss twenty four millimeter f one eight for the E mount the uh, crop sensor Sony mount uh, for my A sixty five hundred, and I actually ended up buying the lens the day before the new episode went up such as the delay in podcasting <laughs> and I've been using it ever since. So you can pretty much see a delineation point in my Instagram where I show a picture of the camera, pretty much everything 
Actually, yeah, everything after that has been with the 6500 and this Zeiss uh, 24 millimeter, which is about 36 or uh, 35 millimeter on the uh, on the crop sensor, and I absolutely adore it. If you're using an E-mount camera and want the best 35-ish prime out there, I can see why. Um, I can see why people go for this. This is one of the more expensive lenses I've ever bought, but it's uh, it's lovely and it takes a, a really crisp photo. It handles light a lot better than the kit lens. Huh. What was the kit lens? What was the focal range on that? It's a 16 to 50. Oh, okay. But it's a 3.5 to 5.6, depending on where you are in the zoom range. Oh, yeah. And I don't really like zoom. I like wide is fine. And I prefer to stay in the sort of wide where you don't get a lot of distortion. So I found, you know, with the uh, X100T being 35 millimeters after the lens is on, it's not a 35 millimeter sensor, but uh, like the Sony, it's a a sensor that essentially magnifies the the lens. Yeah. And with the X100T, you essentially got 35 millimeters, and now I essentially have 35 millimeters on the 6500. And the difference in using the camera is night and day. It's uh, a huh. it, it's it feels like it focuses faster. That may not be accurate. I don't really have any way of testing that. But I definitely only take one or two shots versus several hmm. uh, to get what I want. And you can pretty much run it wide open at one eight, and it seems really sharp, especially certainly right in the center. It is very sharp. Yeah. And then if you stop it down even just a bit into a three five or four, it's uh, razor sharp across the whole the whole range. So great lens, not much bigger than the kit. I mean, it's about double the length of the kit lens, but the kit lens is really only probably a little under two inches. Oh yeah. So this isn't, uh, ab- it's not out of place on a camera of the 6,500 size. So yeah. I'm, uh, I'm thrilled they're expensive, but, uh, really, really, really nice. I'm happy with it. Nice. Yeah. The photos look great. And you, you've sent me a couple of sort of non-watch or non-Instagram photos as well. And, and, you know, the family photos and the car stuff and the watches. I mean, it's, it, I can see how you're going to, you're going to get a lot of use out of that. Yeah, nice simple uh, simple option. I got it on Craigslist, and the guy I had a Zeiss CPL, so I'm set for um, cars as well. I always like to shoot cars with the CPL, and then if you do any video through this lens, the CPL will essentially work as a bit of an ND filter, so you can get the uh, huh. shutter speed to where you want it to be for uh, the videos. Huh. Nice. Which is uh, an added bonus. Yeah. But yeah, uh, you got anything else new, or you want to roll right into uh, our main topic? Let's jump in. I think we've we've got kind of a long overdue one i think this week yeah it's been over six months since we've done a collection inspection so we thought why not uh throw another one in the mix we've got more watches to talk about so uh, uh jason you want to kick it off with uh, yours sure yeah i you know, i was trying to remember what we did for you know our previous ones i couldn't even remember which I, I remember the watches we did but i couldn't remember which order um but when we were chatting about it today you you'd mentioned your choice and and I had one in mind as well, and and we've kind of we're kind of coming down in the same general price bracket, and actually from the same part of the world too. I I picked a Citizen. It's two Citizens, but I'm going to kind of talk about it as one because they're essentially the same watch, separated by 30 years. It's the the Aqualand that if anyone follows me on Instagram, you know you've seen I post a fair number of photos of of one or the other of these watches, and it it's essentially the the the, the two references of, of Aqualand that I have are the the C023 and then the JP2000. And the C023 uh, was Citizen's first Aqualand that was uh, released back in 1985. 
and it was a really revolutionary watch at the time. It was it was, you know, the world's first diving watch that that had an integrated electronic depth gauge, and um, you know, it's got this analog digital display that, um, for for that model in 1985, it it had a, you know, it showed your current depth as you were diving, um, maximum depth as well as um, an alarm function. Uh, it would keep track of of your your maximum. Uh, dive depth as well as your dive time for for the dive that you were using it on, and then it had stuff like you know chronograph and and a second time zone and and I think just a standard alarm for you know waking up in the morning or whatever. But at the time it was really revolutionary and and the watch that I have I picked up uh, quite a while ago I, I think I got it on um, I might have even gotten on on eBay or maybe off of Watch Recon but it's um, it was actually manufactured I checked the serial number and it, it was uh, manufactured in. January of 85 and that was the month the watch was actually released to the public so it's it's a very early one you know you and I have waxed poetic about quartz watches in our last episode and kind of the analog digital form factor you know with your aerospace and and the emergency that I had um but but to me it it represents this great you know early to mid 80s functional aesthetic that really uh, to me kind of represents that era of where watches were headed. You know, we were coming out of that period, you know, the so-called quartz crisis where mechanical watches were sort of uh, on the out and, and everyone was wearing quartz watches, but but the dive computer hadn't, you know, really caught on yet. It was, you know, early 80s when the first dive computers came out. So this was really that kind of bridging watch between tool dive watch and, and dive computer, which, you know, as people know or are more commonly used these days than, than any sort of an analog dive watch. So this this watch was, I think, kind of the ultimate evolution or culmination of what dive watches became. I think it was kind of the last iteration of a true tool dive watch that was used as as it was designed. And, and for that reason, I like it. But I think just aesthetically, it still really holds its own because it has it has kind of a traditional looking dial with these big it has this little digital window at the top of the dial which it doesn't intrude on the aesthetic and I think it kind of I think it actually kind of adds to it um, as well as kind of this bulbous like tumor on the left side that's the depth gauge but um, I, I don't know I've always I've always liked this watch when when I was um, after I got out of high school my, my best friend down there who's I still keep in touch with and still go diving with he he got into diving right away after high school uh, he actually worked in a dive shop and and he he bought one of these, and he had the I think it was the CO twenty, and it was the the one that had the gold accents, and uh, he wore that thing for you know twenty years or something like that before it finally leaked and gave up the ghost. But um, I, I just remember seeing that watch on his wrist and thinking how 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 cool it was that that a that he was using it for for its purpose and and you know it kind of made me want one, but I didn't feel I deserved one until I really got into diving and. I don't know. It, it, it's always kind of stood out as, as one of those icon pieces. And, you know, for a watch that you can get for, you know, 300, maybe 400 bucks, it, it's such a cool watch to own. And then the, kind of the second of the two watches, when I, I talk about kind of the bookend of this is more recently, I picked up uh, the JP2000, which was released in the mid 90s 
to, as kind of an update to the, that first Aqualand. And, and even though Citizen had been updating the, the format of this watch and, and their numerous iterations of Aqualands over the years, the JP2000 was the kind of the version 2, you know, 2.0 of that original Aqualand. It looks almost identical. There are a few font differences on the dial and things, but they they really updated the the functionality of the watch. The, the new one has a four-dive memory. It has an ascent rate alarm, depth alarm. Um, and I think the kind of the biggest change was they, they moved to a screw-on case back, whereas the early one had a case back that was actually the, you know, the exact shape of the watch that was held on by like, I don't know, eight little tiny little jeweler screws. So, you know, if you were changing the battery, actually it had three batteries. It, uh, it was kind of a pain because, you know, you'd have to fiddle with all these little tiny screws and make sure that you tighten them all equally so you, the, the gasket was torqued on correctly and then then you had three batteries you had to deal with and and so the new one I think was quite a quite an upgrade to that and uh, but otherwise it, it looks identical and I think you, you see a lot of you know people that have these watches on Instagram they have the JP2000 because they as far as I know they still make these I mean I bought this it came new in the in the little scuba tank that they sold it in with a stamped warranty and um so it, it, I think it's just really neat that they still sell this watch, not in the U.S., but you can get it from, I got mine from Spain, I think, but you can get it from Singapore or Japan or wherever, um, that you can still get this this really cool watch as it almost as it was made in the early 80s. So, Yeah, for sure. And there's there's not really anything that looks like these watches. Yeah. I mean, there's things that have kind of a similar hand, and of course there's other anti-digi watches, but in terms of the size and the feature set and all of that all applied to the aesthetic yeah they really kind of stand out in a special way i had i had the uh, aqualand that had it was a chronograph with the loom dial oh yeah and um and the depth gauge it didn't have a digital screen on it it just had sub dials yeah it was very complicated to read yes and i had it before i was into diving and i actually kind of wish i still had that it had a little bit of gold accent on it yep. and then the loom dial and that combination was very strange and very cool and <laughs> for whatever reason I flipped it yeah. and, uh, and and those are they're just really, really fun watches and I, I'm trying to think of like an analog for a car because it has a, a style that's very much 80s yeah, but not in a way that seems offensive or ostentatious now. It just feels older now. Yes, yeah, you know, like a like a Toyota pickup truck, like the the ones before the <laughs> the Tacomas, the B series, yeah. the B two thousands and such. Yeah, it just kind of you know simple, straightforward, and 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 then with a certain like citizen charm to the to the entire package. Yeah, and I, I think you know the one that you had, and kind of in subsequent years, probably as dive computers really caught on, and this watch became slightly less relevant, I guess, for for divers. Um, they did get away from the analog digital display and went to that more chronograph look with like a hand that told the the depth. And, and I think by doing that, they actually got away from the really excellent functionality of this one because, uh, you know, a, a digital screen, whether it's on a, a Garmin or a Sunto or whatever, it's just so superior for reading off data quickly, especially if you're underwater, you don't want to be, you know, trying to figure out, you know, is that hand pointing at this or that? It's, it's just very accurate, very crisp and easy to read. And, but I agree with you about the aesthetic and it has this, uh, even though it's it's a it's a big watch. I mean, I measured it just before the show, and, and it's kind of hard to measure. It has four, it's got a crown, and then it has three three different push buttons on it, and then this big bulbous depth gauge on the side. So it's kind of almost hard to find a spot to put the caliper. But kind of across from two to to eight across the the, the case, it's mm-hmm. it's pushing like forty four millimeters, 
and then of course with the the depth gauge on the side it's you know crazy big like 50 some millimeters but it actually wears fairly small it has it has short kind of short lugs and the dial and the bezel are kind of small but then it's really weird because the lug width on this watch is 24 millimeters so it it gives it kind of a it's like a square look. It's kind of a square look, yeah. And yeah. the 24 millimeters is, it's a little tricky. I mean, you know, you can get like Panerai straps in 24 millimeters. But I picked up a, a NATO strap from Crown and Buckle that was a kind of a nice gray 24 millimeter. And then the strap that, that these watches have always come on is this kind of annoyingly stiff rubber accordion style strap that's super long and has metal keepers. Mm-hmm. And then printed on kind of the six o'clock side is the the Nodico table, which I always thought was kind of neat. And especially as it kind of gets used, that sort of starts to rub off and get a little patina to it. But the the strap itself, I've never found terribly comfortable. So I tend to kind of, you know, wear it on a NATO or I've even put it on like a leather strap or something. But uh, yeah, I'm I'm just smitten with this watch. And I've had several over the years. I, I remember I bought a JP2000 oh gosh, I don't know, eight eight years ago or something. And then I was diving in Sri Lanka with some friends that were new divers and and uh, the guy, you know, didn't have a computer or, or even a depth gauge and um, or maybe he had a depth gauge. But anyway, I, I said, you know, um, somebody was like, you want to borrow my computer? And I said, well, you know what? Why don't you just take this Aqualand and use it? Because it, it gives you some of the functionality that you need. It has an ascent rate alarm and it has the, the max depth and all that kind of stuff. And and I just kind of gave it to him. And, and, you know, for the price of these, I just thought it's kind of a nice way to get him started on, on uh, you know, dive watches and kind of give him a tool that he could start using. And, and so then, you know, inevitably I replaced it with a, with a different one. But uh, For sure. It, it, it's a watch that, uh, you know, I've always, I'll always want in my collection. I've actually got my, the old, uh, the CO23 is actually in Georgia right now being serviced at Citizens Service Center. The, the, oh, cool. The battery started to go and... I thought let's get it, you know, fully overhauled and get the gaskets, you know, get it all water, watertight again, and and get it all serviced and ready to go. So I, I imagine it'll be back in a couple of weeks. So yeah, fun piece. Um, you know, maybe not one that, you know, people expect. Maybe after our quartz episode, people were hoping we'd get back to, uh, you know, I don't know, Omegas and Bremonts and stuff. But uh, you know, this is this is the one. Yeah, I think it's kind of an overlooked piece as well. I mean, you d- you definitely see guys on Watch You Seek that love them. Yeah, and uh, but there, it's kind of like that watch has kind of a crew. Yes, yeah. Uh, that's that's kind of championing its existence uh, <laughs> yeah. in the enthusiast space. Yeah, and I, I, yeah, I definitely, I definitely think the appeal is so similar to that of the aerospace or the emergency or you know these kind of tough multifunction and and it just gives you another size option if you look at something like uh, like my forty millimeter aerospace seems too small. Yeah. Then, then you have this option, and uh, what do you, how do you find the the loom on the hands? Uh, it's fantastic. The loom is, you know, Citizen I think is up there with with Seiko and some other a few other brands with with loom. And uh, you know, on the old one, the loom is long gone, but uh, yeah, on this one, it's um, it's nice and bright. Um, what's really remarkable is I had this watch. I took it diving in uh, Florida I don't know, a few weeks ago. The in daylight, the that. L- fluorescent orange minute hand it just positively glows i mean i'm not even talking luminescence it's just so bright orange wow um it's it's really cool but, and the uh, bezel i I've, I've never played with one 
Uh, so I, I don't. Bezel's know a little kind of. It, it's easy to grip. It's tall and kind of knurled, um, just like the the crown is. Um, the, mm-hmm. the the bezel isn't fully loomed. It's uh, it's just an aluminum insert. But the, uh, you know, it's got a little pip. I mean, it kind of looks like an old. Uh, gosh, I don't know, like an old Seamaster or old uh, Submariner bezel or something. But uh, right, easy easy to grip. It's a little sloppy, but you know, I don't I don't mind that. And you can you know I I've used it for. You know, it's got it's got like a, you know, full on digital chronograph so you can use it for you know running or swimming laps or whatever you want to use it for and uh, i remember i haven't you know dived with it much recently but uh i can remember you know wearing a dive computer on one wrist and and this on the other and you know you get get ascending a little faster than you should and and it it beeps at you you know it'll it'll do the full ascent alarm which i've always found i mean not that i want to you know, be making a practice of ascending too quickly from a dive, but it's kind of a kick to have, you know, just your your little watch kind of screaming at you. Uh, you expect that from your dive computer, but it, it was just kind of kind of neat to have that feature on the watch and, for sure, and to have the the dive log. You know, you can scroll through four dives and and uh, play back your your information. So it's funny with those. You mentioned the the uh, the rapid ascent alarm. Yeah, you know, I don't I don't know what the sensitivity is on the Sunto Zoop for that, but I, I never, either either I've never had that alarm go off or the diving I do around Vancouver, I have a hood on and I can't hear the beep. Oh, yeah. But diving in Clipperton, didn't have a hood on, it was 30 degrees, it was very warm, and a couple of dives were in fairly considerable surge. Oh, yeah. And it would set the alarm off depending on the position of your arm. Oh, sure. Yeah. And uh, and then I was it was unnerving the first couple of times because I was like, oh, have I done something wrong? And I'm looking at it and, you know, it's saying like <laughs> the, the little gauge on the right is full. And then you're like, oh, and then I could hear other people's doing it. You can hear so much more when you don't have a hood on. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and it's funny to be able to hear everybody's camera beeping at them and their computers when everybody's <laughs> in the same sort of surge it just feels like you're surrounded in a little yeah uh, symphony of uh, of a little electronic beeps but <laughs> yeah that's cool uh, it's it's fun that they pack some of those features into a watch you know isn't a dive computer per se yeah um at, you know as it's not doing any gas calculation uh, gas exposure calculations for you but yeah uh still uh, still really cool and and i, th- I guess the uh, so you can still get the modern one and i guess its competition would be like a frogman yeah, maybe. I mean, the latest Frogman I know has depth gauge and, and some of these same features. I I don't know the Frogman as well, um, the most recent Me one. Me neither, but, yeah. Uh, I think it's such a legitimate kind of backup uh, backup tool if your dive computer went down. I mean, you could still certainly at least, uh, you know, keep track of your max and, and current depth. And it's much more useful, I think, than um, a lot of the really high-end depth gauge diving watches, um, you know, like... Uh, you know, even like the the Aquatimer, you know, Deep Three, or um, sure, you know, some of these others, Jaeger Lecoultre, or even the Oris, um, that kind of give you current depth and, and maybe maximum depth in some cases. But uh, you know, the fact that you can log dives and it does kind of ascent alarms. It, I mean, it was designed in the '80s before, like I said, uh, computers kind of really took hold. So it, it still maintains that real functionality to it um, that I like. Yeah, so. really cool. And I think it kind of represents a era you know when i was kind of coming of age like i said i had this friend that was getting into diving and it sort of came out of that time when when at the time i think you know i've talked about this uh, one of our very early episodes and it's a good segue to get into the watch that you chose you know when i was wearing like a mechanical skx or, or 7002 seiko you know diving watches 
captivated me even back then. And I think I wasn't quite ready for the Aqualand back then, but I think, uh, it, it, it still kind of has this nostalgia to it, um, that, that I really, I really enjoy. So yeah, let's, maybe that's a good place to kind of jump into to your pick, which, uh, I'll let you introduce. Yeah. So my pick is uh, a fairly easy, straightforward one. It's my Seiko SKX 007. I recently realized that I had had the watch for 10 years, uh, this past March. And if you'd asked, and I think I've even said on the show that I've had it for more like seven or eight years. And I honestly don't know where a couple of those years went, but uh, I got it very early in my sort of watch enthusiast career, if you will. Uh, I, you know, I had bought a, uh, I bought a handful of other watches, um, a couple Invictas and a couple Orients, um, no, but not like dive watches, just things that I was interested in purely on their aesthetic. Mm-hmm. And I liked the Invicta fine, and then I learned enough to know that it was essentially just a direct ripoff of a very famous watch. And I had at the time a Daytona clone and a sub clone. And so I ditched both of those and and decided to, you know, look into what you could get that was legitimate at, at a price point I was willing to spend when I was 20 and, uh, you know, in university and, you know, wanting to spend most of my money on gas for my car or <laughs> insurance for my car, things like that. So I eventually came across the SKX 007 and the SKX 779, the original Black Monster. Um, I ended up buying both of those, and just over the process of elimination, I found the 07 to be just more wearable day-to-day. Uh, I really like the Monster, and I wish uh, I had either held onto it or I've been oddly eyeing uh, 781, the orange Monster, just oh, for yeah. fun. Because that's a lot of fun for the money that they charge for them. Yeah. But with my SKX 007, I, it basically has been on my wrist weekly for 10 years. And then about uh, two months ago, I got it serviced for its first first time. So I just got it back uh, about a month ago or maybe three weeks ago. Huh. And it's uh, it's running like a top and uh, keeping good time and, and all ready to dive and all those sorts of things. And other than that, the watch, um, the watch is uh, essentially bone stock aside from I installed a stainless steel 12 hour bezel. Oh yeah. Because I didn't really uh, plan to do any diving with this watch. And even if I did, you still have a 12 marker, so you could still dive with it. You just have to do a tiny bit of math underwater. Mm -hmm. But I installed, I really love a steel bezel. A bunch of my collection uses a steel bezel and uh, I really adore the way this looks. And then I really love the functionality of a 12 hour bezel giving you um, a complication free GMT. So you didn't you didn't just buy a, an insert you bought a, an entire replacement bezel? Uh, no, it is just an insert. Sorry, okay. yeah, it is just an insert. You can buy the whole bezel from uh, Yabokis, the company that sells the insert. Yeah, but it is just an insert, and uh, there's a technique. Uh, you can basically use a a dull knife, huh. or you know a thin a thin and I wrap it in tape. Yeah. And you can get it under one side of the bezel and just kind of wiggle it until you get to the catch point and the bezel pops off. Sure. It doesn't take as much force as you would expect, but it's maybe a little scary if it's your first time or if this is like your favorite watch. Yeah. And then the insert is kind of glued in, the original black aluminum insert, mm-hmm. and you kind of pop that out of place, uh, hopefully without bending the insert so I wouldn't use too much force. And then this one actually just kind of clicks right in place. I want to say I paid uh, 30 bucks for it. Huh. Back in the day, I, that was uh, three years ago, so I don't know what they charge right now. Um, and and at the uh, listen into final notes, I, I've put this bezel specifically this bezel 
in final notes and I have some instructions on how you actually go about buying the bezel because it's not just a normal web store. It's a little bit more um, complicated than that, but <laughs> I think it's worth worth your time. And then my only note was uh, the bezel that I received, a couple of the numbers in the in the scale, the 12-hour scale, yeah. weren't fully painted. Huh. Um, they, it had just either worn off or the paint wasn't done that well. And at $30, what, what are you really going to do? Yeah. Um, and I just took um, like a uniball pen, one of those liquid pens. Yeah. And you can actually just set the ceramic ball into the indent, the carving for the number. Huh. And it just fills it with ink and that's held for, well, three years. Oh, wow. <laughs> uh, so n- no issue there. And then you can just wipe off the excess with a... Uh, like a piece of paper towel, and it le- what's left is painted in the numeral. <laughs> That's great. I kept the click spring, so it's still, you know, still clicks and, and is still unidirectional. Yeah. But I guess if I wanted to, you could pop this off again, take that spring out, and make it bidirectional. But this sure. way, I knew that it would hold. It wouldn't get bumped or anything, and I, I don't mind it the way that it is. Yeah. And it could still function as a dive watch just fine, although, really, I'm not sure how important a unidirectional bezel is for the way that I dive. It's pretty lazy. Yeah. It's not going to get bumped. I absolutely adore this watch and I would buy another one if it broke. This is the watch, um, although it doesn't really work with a suit. This is a watch I wore to my wedding huh. simply because it was a watch that I knew I would never sell. Yeah. And it would be the last one I would get rid of. It looked ridiculous in the photos. I just kind of kept it under the cuff. I, I think a big <laughs> dive watch looks ludicrous with a suit. <laughs> you know, your opinion may vary, which is fine. Of course, you wear what you want to wear. And yeah, it's uh, it's it's as close to a sentimental watch as I have, and uh, I I really really love it. I think it's wearable, and if you had no sentimental attachment to it, then I would say every uh, ten years or whatever, whenever it's not keeping great time, probably between five and ten years, uh, give it to a friend or a friend's kid, and buy another one for yourself. It's going to be about the same as servicing it. Yeah. You know, a normal watch movement service, a full service is going to be about $250, uh, depending on where you go. At least that's the average that I've experienced with um, having two Seiko serviced and a couple Edas. Yeah. is somewhere between $250 and $350, depending on where you go and how fast they are and all those sorts of things. Like, everybody kind of knows this watch, and I don't like the bracelet, the Jubilee bracelet. Like, it's not bad. It just, it's like rattly on your wrist and... uh and I, I really like the watch on a NATO or on a, a leather strap. It works really well for both because it's not like a really thin watch, but it's not a super thick watch either. So yours came on the bracelet. It didn't come on the that rubber strap that so many of them come on, the, the flat vent Z22 strap, huh? Right. This one came with both. Oh, um, oh it did. Oh, wow. I, I actually, I don't remember who I bought this from because it was 10 years ago. And I think it was before I knew about Creation Watch, which is where I would buy a Seiko today. Yeah. Um, or a Seiko like this today. Yeah. And I like this watch because a lot of times when you start out in watches, you're going to buy things that the later version of you as an enthusiast will scoff at. Yeah. Like, oh, I wish I hadn't bought those Invictus or, oh, I wish I hadn't bought this or that. That was a junk watch. That one was broken by the time I got it. Whatever whatever the reason, either your taste change or you learn more or whatever. But this is a watch from roughly the start of my interest in this hobby that I can still wear with zero shame or issue or anything i love this watch as much as when i first got it yeah and they're super wearable and uh, they're not expensive and i think it's a nice thing to wear to like a red bar event because you meet other people who maybe are just getting into the into the uh into the the hobby or the the enthusiasm of watch collecting and then you have something kind of to show them that's accessible a lot of red bar stuff is 
very expensive old Speedmasters and lovely Navitimers and expensive new subs and things like that. Yeah. And it's always nice to have a couple of these just just to kind of share the love of stuff at the $200 price point. I mean, I think this is this was probably roughly the king of our watches under $250 episode yeah. and for another $30, I essentially made it mine with uh, with the, the steel bezel. I Jokingly on Instagram, I call it the CMT, the cheap mean time. <laughs> and yeah, I, I love this watch, I think. And, and you can buy old ones. You can buy new ones. You can buy ones that are um, not made in Japan. You can buy ones that are made in Japan. There's lots of options. The prices don't range that far. Like we talked about last week, there's a quartz kind of version which is a little bit smaller at about 39 millimeters the perpetual prospects yeah uh, which is uh which is a cool option and then if you're listening to this and you're going like oh every time you guys mention an skx 007 but they're too big for my wrist you can get an skx 013 hmm. which is the kind of mid-sized version of a 007 so it looks identical black bezel all of that i don't know what your options will be for modding the smaller version yeah but it's just a small, I want to say it's 37 or 38 millimeters. I haven't seen one to measure in person. And of course, all these sites, these kind of gray market Seiko sites have different sizes yeah. listed. Um, but yeah, I, th- I think that as a family of watches, there's a ton to offer. And I think that universally, when you when you talk to watch enthusiasts, with the possible exception of movement enthusiasts, mm-hmm. because the, um, the 7S26 that's in these is not a, a great movement. It's not up to the even the level of say a uh, twenty eight twenty four. Yeah, I don't think it's a bad movement. It requires a service every ten years, which is awesome, and uh, and it keeps very good time. In so much as I don't notice it being fast or slow, I don't measure my watches any more accurately than that. Mm-hmm. If if I notice the watch is fast or slow, then there's a problem. Uh, but otherwise, uh, I I really like this, and and they get it gets accolades kind of across all price price points and 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 certainly if you're getting into the hobby and you're somehow have made it to uh, episode 37 of the Grenado without uh buying something i think this is uh the uh, the right kind of thing to save up for if you're a university co- uh, college kid or uh you know blow some birthday money and and uh, and pick up a, a great watch i absolutely adore mine and if you get tired of it you just mod it i'll i'll speak more about the modding side of it in final notes but there's like a billion things you can do hands dials bezels all of it the skx family i mean the the even like the 009 you can get the pepsi bezel and and uh yep it, it i i think um you know i've got an skx i think it's the 173 which is the the 009 that came on on a jubilee bracelet which i, I personally i love that jubilee I, I i know that it's thin and rattly and cheap feeling but something about it just has this like it, it feels like a watch from the 60s for sure yeah i mean it, it's kind of one of a handful or, or even less than a handful of um, uh, truly sort of unimpeachable watches that any watch nerd will respect. It's, it's so funny how a watch at this price point will just universally be accepted, like you said, at a red bar event or um, I, I think almost, you know, every watch nerd that, that's been in the game for more than a few years um, knows this watch and has probably owned one. And it's kind of a testament to that that I, I think Hodinkee, when they do watch reviews, they'll they'll often use the the weight of an SKX 007 as kind of the benchmark. So like if they if they're reviewing a even like a Langa chronograph or something, they'll they'll weigh it in grams and then they'll say for reference, an SKX 007 weighs X, you know, because it's people can pick up their own and say, oh, okay, it's double that or it's the same as that. And 
Yeah, it's a clever usage of essentially establishing a unit. Yeah, yeah. One one SKX. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, no, I, I agree with, because, I mean, Grams is pretty yeah esoteric at a certain point. If you're, if you're, if you're used to a giant Panerai, you wouldn't know how much it weighs. Yeah. And if you're used to some titanium feather light Skagen or something like that, you wouldn't realize that you're wearing something that's like 50 or 60 grams, weighs about as much as a bracelet on most watches. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, yeah, no, I've, I've always thought that was a cool idea and, and a, a good use of the, a good way to leverage the ubiquity of this platform. Yeah. It's just such a, it's such a functional, handsome looking watch. I love the markers of that sort of lozenge shaped markers on the dial. The yeah. hands are really good looking. It, it's just a, in whatever kind of form, even you know, lightly modded like yours with the, with the bezel, it's just, it's a very eye pleasing watch. It's the kind of watch if you if you owned only that watch, you'd probably not get tired of looking at it every day. I think it's, um, it, like you said, it wears well on different straps, and um, you know, you can dive with it, and you can wear it to your wedding, and you can, you know, I mean, it's uh, it's such a great pick. I mean, you, I, I think you can't say enough about the SKX. I I, I realize that we're probably pushing the limit the edge pushing the limit but uh, <laughs> yeah um and I, I don't even think it's necessarily the the official watch of the gray nato but it's it's just so no. representative of the kind of stuff we'd like um that uh i i would inch you know we don't uh, we don't do a lot of sort of endorsements on the show but i think it's probably as close as i would come to actually endorsing telling like literally just telling someone to go out and buy one of these watches because they're, they're just so great yeah whenever whenever you have that that email that seems to always come up in November. <laughs> my husband wants a watch. My my boyfriend wants a watch. My son wants a watch. What what do I get? This is always in the list. Yeah. And I think they often. I would say quite often people go with something else. Yeah. Yeah. In in my in my experience, but the second time when they come back the next time. Yeah. A year or two later, and turns out husband or boyfriend or whomever wanted more watches. Then, then I think they land on this, and uh, and and I think it's a great choice. And if you want something a little bit stranger, go with a monster. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I love, I absolutely love the monster, and the Loom is just so much fun. I mean, the Loom is really good on the 07 and the 09s and the 173s and the 013. All of those great Loom. The monster is just a different thing altogether. It's like it's like the markers are made out of Loom, huh. and it's uh, they're, so they're very bright. Uh, ludicrously bright and a great bezel and just a very kind of not wacky but um, just strange like I guess when I say strange almost always I think I I mean it as like a, a very positive thing I love a strange watch yeah and I think the monster if, if you look at the at the 007 and you go like well it's just it looks like a steel dive watch which you're not wrong yeah it looks exactly like a dive watch yeah and you want something a little bit stranger you're going to get the same level of everything in the monster and there's now uh, i believe three total generations of the monster i'm starting to see the latest uh revision of the srp 3xxk models and so those have a pointed marker and then the earlier uh, 779781, which are my preference just because that's what i'm used to uh and i've had both i had the vampire uh, the the earlier ones have kind of a squared off marker, which just feels a little bit more old school. Hmm. And the marker in the hands are that off color loom. Uh, uh, I can't remember the, the term you used for it about I don't know fifteen episodes ago, but <laughs> you know it's it's not white in daylight. It's this kind of greenish, pale tone. Yeah, yeah. And then you come in from a sunny day inside to a, a darker room, or you hit it with a flashlight at night, and they're just crazy. I mean, that's how all Seikos are basically. Yeah. 
Yeah. And uh, and the monster has uh, the monster is is a better bracelet. Certainly, it's this solid H link style bracelet that uses a very annoying to the uninitiated call, pin and collar system to retain this the the links. Yeah. So you have to use a, a little pusher tool to remove the pin, and then the collar just falls out on your desk and disappears forever. <laughs> but if you can do it over a big piece of tape, then you retain all your collars and can put the bracelet back together and the bracelet's really comfortable for that price point and it's solid and chunky and heavy and huh. uh, I mean I, I guess I was I was probably just supposed to talk about the 007 but I think you have to view it in the in the entirety there's a small one there's a quartz one there's a bunch of ones at this 0709 uh, etc and uh, and then you have this kind of offshoot into the monster which I think is a, a great option if you want something a little bit stranger you already have a black dial diver get the orange monster Oh, that yeah. sort of thing. Yeah, lots to love. Maybe it's a maybe this is a good segue for you to jump in, go right into um, how to how to order that uh, that bezel. Oh yeah, so let's uh, let's dive into final notes, and yeah, I'll kick it off. So, uh, Yuboki's is essentially just like a um, a photo bucket gallery hmm. on if you remember, so this like pre flicker photo bucket. Yeah. Um. So it's just a gallery with hundreds of different things. So on the left. I'll link directly to the bezel that I've been talking about, which is called the SS GMT bezel. But there's loads of stuff. It's not just bezel. It's hundreds of different things that he carries, but it's all just organized by photo with no description or information. (laughs) So when you find the thing that it is that you want, basically you uh, copy the link or the name if you prefer. I I did both in the email that I sent to uh, Yabokis. And basically you copy the link and the name of the item and send send uh, Harold is the gentleman's name, and send Harold an email, and uh, I'll, I'll put this in the show notes. But it's yabokis at yahoo.com.hk. and uh, and then he basically replies with instructions and a link to order whatever you want. It's it sounds ridiculous in the context of how we normally buy things online now, but it works just fine. You send an email; it, it, it's kind of like buying something from a friend. Yeah. Or from a Craigslist or something like that. Like you just send an email and then Harold gets back to you with what it costs and how to go about buying it, and it was all perfectly easy. Yeah. And then uh, it and then it shipped to you. So it, it's not as easy as just picking the thing from a store and putting it in your cart and then checking out. But at least if you have any questions, especially about things like compatibility, yeah. or whether or not you have to buy another bezel for the insert, or if you want just the insert, Harold would be the guy to ask. Yeah, and um, it'd been three years since I sent this. I know Yahoo's not exactly like the most reputable tech brand out there right now, <laughs> but I did find a thread on Watch You Seek where I verified these steps. That was uh, from November 2016. Huh. Uh, so please, if you do all this work and then write Harold and it doesn't work, could you just send me a quick email, uh, thegrainado at gmail dot com? Because we, we can update in the next episode if it turns out these instructions have failed i couldn't find direct instructions on his website i found them on watch you seek that link to his website and and that's basically how how you buy from what's essentially a photo gallery on photo bucket but uh yeah so the bezel that i have is that uh ssgmt bezel it's just an insert and then uh i have on my notes here was 32 dollars when i bought it three years ago so maybe it's a little bit more now and it's been great it actually doesn't show a lot of scratches it's uh it's awesome. Worth every penny. Huh. Is payment handled through like PayPal or something? I yeah, assume? I paid via PayPal. Yeah, so it's it's basically just one extra step, which doesn't sound too daunting. No, and I mean like 
it, it also kind of like means that you're not necessarily filling in a form and creating a user profile on a website. Yeah. You're just sending Harold an email and I, I it doesn't bother me. I, I don't mind it being like this. Uh, it's it's uh, definitely confusing if you just land on his photo bucket and you don't know what to do next. Oh, yeah. Um, but once you know what to do, and, and there's a ton of people on WatchySeek that explain this, like there's tons of threads where people have asked and they're like, oh, please, we've already talked about this, blah, like, yeah. But once you know what to do, it's not that difficult. It's a couple of steps and your bezel will be in the mail. So huh, cool. bezel or hands or crystals or dials or yeah, whatever. Yeah. It's got tons of stuff. Huh, nice. That's basically just the like very crest of the dark hole that is Seiko modding. If you want to go down that hole, I would go to WatchySeek and, and start there. There are people in the States that specialize in modding Seiko, so you can basically tell them the hands, the dial, the bezel, and all of that, and they'll assemble it and all put it together and make you something cool. And then there's tons of guides on doing it yourself and what kind of tools you would need and, and, and that kind of thing. And this is you know tantamount to buying that $500 car from your neighbor and then working on it in your driveway. I mean, if, if you go out and buy uh, even a used Seiko and start pulling it apart to learn how hands are set and how dials work and, and all these things, that's a pretty good project yeah. if you're looking for uh, so, you know something to kill some time. So I, I think you could definitely walk your way into that sort of hobby backwards. I've certainly gotten to the point of having a bunch of tools in the cart and then just not checking it out. <laughs> but someday, someday when I'm just flush for time, which is not now, but some other day maybe. <laughs> yeah, well, a, a local guy here um, who's a avid Grey NATO listener, Ed Estlow, um, he's done some some writing that some people may have read as well. Um, yeah, for sure. He, uh, he did his own modification a couple of years ago. He got an old uh, turtle, you know, 6309, one of the, the old, the original Seiko turtles from, uh, mm-hmm. you know, the 80s or whatever it was. And um, he bought the kit to to modify it to look like a, like an orange dial Doxa. So, you know, he got the bezel, like a no-deco bezel and... Uh, oh, yeah, a Soxa. Soxa, yes, that's what the, that's what they're called. <laughs> orange dial with yeah, like the crosshairs sure. and kind of that asymmetrical dial and... The little hand it looks, yeah. I mean, it's it's crazy because it's the same kind of case shape you get in a Doxa, so uh, mm-hmm. kind of a neat mod. But uh, yeah, that's cool. Yeah, for sure. Uh, what what have you got for uh, final notes? Uh, first one I'm going to mention was an article that that popped up. Uh, I think it was last week or the week before, written by um, you know a good friend of ours, uh, great great um, watch writer Jack Forrester over on Hodinkee. Um, he he did a piece that that kind of merged a lot of stuff that that I geek out about and I know you do too. And, and, uh, it was, it was an article about the Bulova Accutron astronaut, which, um, you know, was a watch that, that many people know, um, made kind of in the, in the 1960s. Uh, but what was really cool about it was that that watch was, um, it was kind of official issue to the pilots of, um, the Lockheed a 12, which was kind of the, the, the premier and, and, Arguably, still, you know, one of the premier high-speed stealth, you know, spy planes of of any era. And uh, the, the article's just—it's such a, a wonderful in-depth piece about um, not only the, the the watch, but the development of of the plane and in Lockheed's uh, Skunk Works program that that you know basically built a, a brand new plane starting from you know blank sheet of paper and and uh, all the elements that went into that plane and and why. Um, it, the, it was required that the pilots had a special watch that didn't have uh, a standard mechanical escapement, which very few watches were available that didn't have that back then. And, and so the Accutron was 
was chosen for that reason. And last year I had actually bought um, from a guy here locally, I bought one of these Accutron astronauts um, of the same sort that they, these guys used. And it, it was a really cool watch, you know, steel bezel, 24 hour bezel with, uh, with a 24 hour hand and um, just kind of really stark black and white dial. It has that great um, Accutron tuning fork movement in it. So you get that, that really cool hum. I, I didn't hold on to it because it was, uh, it's just wore really small. It's, it's a small watch. It's, you know, kind of an early sixties piece. But now I want another one because this this article is just so good and and you know as kind of a aviation geek and and of course um, you know a real fan of purpose built and and used tool watches it, it just kind of ticked all the boxes for me and um, you know we'll link out to that but he did such a great job with that piece and yeah Jack did such a fantastic. I don't know if Jack listens, but either way, Jack, I mean, kudos for this. This is a piece that I've thought about before. You know, I've read just about everything I can about the uh, Oxcart program that led to the SR-71. I genuinely believe the 71 to be maybe the most fantastic thing people have ever made. Um, You know, the space shuttle is right up there, too. But uh, to to tie it into the watches and and in the manner that Jack does it, I mean, he's just very good at what he does. And and that's fully displayed by this piece absolutely anyone who's listening to this should definitely either hit the show notes or swing over to holding key and check out that post because it's a plus yeah and it reminds me too that that several years ago i mean quite a few years ago actually jack was before he even got into writing about watches professionally he was a a kind of a top contributor to the watch forum called the purists which i think is based out of asia somewhere and and it kind of has this interesting following it's not the most popular watch forum on the web but if you go over there and and read you know some of the stuff in the forum and some of the articles over there it these guys really know their stuff and jack wrote this three-part series i think he called it the right stuff and it was if you can google this uh you know maybe i should have we can add it to the show notes if i can find it but um yeah for sure it was it was the most extensive in-depth history of the development of the speedmaster and why it was chosen by nasa I think I've read it many times because it's just such a fantastic piece and it's just, it's great long form writing. You know, you can just, it's just, it's in three parts. It's got great photos uh, that he embedded with it. Um, and I, I think it's articles like that, that ultimately probably led Jack to get into the, the you know, the career that he's in. I, I don't know for sure, but, uh, it reminds me that this Accutron piece, um, reminds me of, of why I've always liked Jack's writing and, uh, for sure. Um, so, yeah. But uh, definitely check out the Accutron Astronaut piece. Actually, I remember when I had that watch last year, I had dug up some information that, that it was actually the also the official issue of pilots of the X-15, which was um, kind of a precursor to the A-12 and the SR-71 and um, was kind of the, the, the you know, the, the, the fast plane before the SR-71 that, that actually Neil Armstrong flew. And um, there was there was like a magazine ad that I, I bought off of eBay that had a picture of the you know, said this is the official watch of the X-15 pilots. And so, you know, some great history. I, mean, I think Bulova has kind of slipped from people's minds, uh, especially recently, although they've kind of had a kind of a cool comeback with some throwback pieces. But uh, um, some great, great stuff from, from this, uh, this old brand. So check that out. Yeah, great piece. Definitely worth a read. So my second one for this week, my, my last one, is uh, a brand new podcast uh, that's going to be mostly for the car nerds that are listening. I would say at least there's only one episode so far, and it was very car-centric. And, and given the people that are on, I think it's going to fade between um, kind of entertainment and comedy 
and then into uh, cars a lot. So it's called Spike's Car Radio. So any of you who know the name Spike Ferriston, he uh, wrote for Seinfeld, the, the sitcom, and he has uh, a very successful show on the Esquire network called Car Matchmaker, where he meets somebody, generally a celebrity, and then team finds them a car, uh, usually not a new car. Like it's it's a it's pretty fun uh, if if you're into cars, and basically uh, he and his buddies of of whom you know you have everybody from uh, Seinfeld to uh, Patrick Dempsey and and other like kind of entertainment people in the entertainment industry that are also really into cars. Um, they often go to a spot in Malibu called the Malibu Kitchen and sit and chat over breakfast huh. about cars. And he decided to start recording these as a, as a show. So it's only one episode in so far. And the first episode is uh, Jerry Seinfeld and their buddy Paul Zuckerman. I think I have that name right. I follow him on Instagram, but it's I think it's like uh, his Instagram name is his last name. It's Zuckerman. And... Uh, so obviously Seinfeld is a huge car collector with a, pre- a preeminent Porsche collector in the world. Fairston has a bunch of Porsches and Zuckerman has a bunch of Porsches. So they talk at length about Porsche and uh, and and old and new and and very esoteric. Uh, you know, hunting down cars that were two made in sequence from the factory that had a different roof than the rest of them, <laughs> and they're worth a fortune, or had no factory radio and are worth a fortune. And they talk about the the new Porsche 911 Turbo S exclusive, which is like uh, in Canada, it's a $300,000 911 with uh, over 600 horsepower. So they talk about that. And and, I mean, obviously, they have the perspective of very wealthy collectors, which is fun for somebody who doesn't buy Porsches ever. (laughs) But if you're looking for another podcast uh, that you can start kind of at the first episode, then I would check out uh, Spike's Car Radio. I really liked the first episode. Uh, You know, Seinfeld's always funny. And uh, their buddy uh, uh, Zuckerman that was on is, uh, is is a laugh as well. So they, they had a good time and it was a good episode. Huh. That's great. And I enjoyed watching um, Spike when he was featured on the Hodinkee Talking Watches. And he just, he definitely come, he, he has a great presence. He just has a great delivery. I think he's, he's you know, for someone who, who is into, you know, collecting cars and watches, I mean, there's certainly potential to, for a certain level of pretense. And he has like none of that. And I think it's really refreshing. Yeah, funny and affable, and I think it's fairly approachable. Even though they are talking about like in, at some in some instances million dollar cars. Yeah, I absolutely loved the episode, and and uh, it's funny, and I'm excited to see where they take it from there because it's kind of a neat presence. You can hear all the noise of the restaurant. Oh yeah, uh, yeah. around them because they're just recording at their table, but it's produced properly and it's done through the podcast one network, so it's not like he's just putting a phone on the table and clicking record. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, if, if you're into cars and, and, and you kind of dig Spike, then check it out. And if you're not sure who Spike is, then I, yeah, uh, swing by Hodinkee's Talking Watches with Spike. It's, uh, it's, uh, it's pretty cool. I listened to him on, uh, another car podcast, The Smoking Tire, and, uh, the host of The Smoking Tire, Matt Farad, recently got into watches in a fairly big way. Hmm. And so they, they talked at length about watches and he's also had on Jonathan Ward from Icon. Oh yeah. And talked to him a bunch about watches. And so it's fun to see watches start to infiltrate, (laughs) uh, the other side of my like hobby interest with cars. So (laughs) it's a, it's cool. It's a good show. Check it out. Huh? Nice. Well, I'll close out with it with another article. Um, this one's uh, from men's journal, uh, came up, uh, last week and, it was written by another sort of gray NATO hero, Conrad Anker, who was kind of one of the other guys in the film Meru, 
uh, along with Jimmy Chin and Renan Ozturk. But uh, Anchor, you know, legendary mountaineer. Uh, he wrote this piece for Men's Journal called, uh, it was just, <laughs> didn't really have a title. It was just Conrad Anchor on Uli Steck's Final Climb. And, you know, Anchor isn't, uh, you know, I, I don't know that he's done much writing and, and whatever, it, but this just felt like kind of a raw from the heart sort of appreciation of, of a fellow <clears throat> legend in, in mountaineering. And, of course, Uli Steck died uh, back in April when he was on um, a mountain over in the, in the Himalayas preparing for, for kind of a pretty epic traverse uh, across Everest to, to the neighboring mountain. And, and uh, he died in kind of what, what many consider sort of a routine type of climb that, that, you know, he shouldn't have died on. But I think Anchor sort of bypasses that whole question because it really is sort of a moot point and just really kind of does a really nice appreciation of Uli Steck's career, his background. I mean, you know, if you've ever seen videos and there are certainly plenty of them out there of, of Uli Steck climbing. He was just superhuman. I mean, just an amazing person to watch. I think, you know, with, with Alex Honnold's free solo of, of El Capitan a, a couple of weeks ago, you know, climbing is kind of in the forefront and, and there's some really exciting stuff going on, some really exciting climbers. And I think arguably Honnold on the kind of the pure rock climbing side uh, and Steck on the, on the mountaineering side, just were at the real bleeding edge of, of, of what was possible in the mountains. And it was such a tragedy when Steck died and sure. And Conrad Anker, of course, has done amazing things himself. And he wasn't, uh, he, you know, in the article, he talks about how he wasn't really, he, he never was a climbing partner of, of Uli's and, um, but you know, they crossed paths in, in various expeditions or various times, you know, at base camp at Everest or, um, you know, just different parts of the world over, over their, mutual histories. And, um, I think, you know, comparing the two, I think there's such different personalities. Um, and yet you, you can just sense that, that Conrad Anker just had such deep respect for Uli Steck that, um, to read it was, um, there wasn't anything I would say groundbreaking or anything I learned new about Uli Steck reading this, but it was just, it's neat to see one sort of giant of any discipline kind of, write about somebody else. It's sort of, everything else falls silent. It sort of shuts everybody else up and you sort of read, okay, Conrad Anker, you know, you, you've got to kind of sit back and listen to what he has to say. And um, I think his appreciation of what, what Steck did and, and who he was is uh, was really poignant. And I think, uh, it, you know, it actually ends in, in a great quote that I think we'll close the episode out with this week, but uh, uh, just, just a great article. Yeah, agreed. Really uh, well written and a, a great summary of of Steck. And I think it would serve really well as a primer if you are listening to this and you're like, you know what, the only time I've ever heard this guy's name is when <laughs> James and Jason have brought him up and you're not sure who Uli Steck is. This would be a pretty good starting point for um, a kind of a, a quick overview of his career and, 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 and that sort of thing. And, and certainly right up until uh, his very untimely death but an ultra high performer and one that changed the sport repeatedly throughout his career. Yeah. Uh, and, and it's nice to, to see another guy at the top of the game, like you said, um, kind of voice respect for what he had accomplished and how he went about doing it. Yeah, definitely. Well, as always, thanks so much for listening. Hit the show notes for more details. You can follow us on Instagram. I'm at Jason Heaton. James is at J.E. Stacy. And do follow the show at The Grenado. 
If you have any questions for us, please write thegraynado at gmail.com. Please subscribe and review wherever you find your podcasts, or grab the feed from thegraynado.com. Music throughout is Siesta by Jazzar via the Free Music Archive. And until next time, we leave you with this quote from Uli Steck, who said, And now I'll just go and only worry about the events that lie ahead of me. Day by day, one by one. It is here and now that counts. What comes next is uncertain in any case. Learn from yesterday, live for today, and hope for tomorrow. Thank you.